Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekend, your audio supplement to the news from Israel, the Middle East and the Jewish world. I'm Simon Spungin. On today's show... We gotta save the world Someone else may want to use Prime Minister Naftali Bennett is currently in Scotland at the head of a 120-member Israeli delegation to the United Nations Climate Change Conference, COP26. The conference comes in the same week that state controller Matanyahu Engelman published a damning report into Israel's chronic, systematic and endemic unpreparedness for the coming crisis, which he described as an utter failure. Joining me today to discuss Israel's climate cop-out and some of the exciting new archaeological discoveries in Israel, including the fabled Church of the Apostles, I'm delighted to welcome Haaretz's senior editor for science and archaeology, Ruth Schuster. Uh, Ruth, great to have you here. Hi, Simon. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be back. So possibly for the first, last and only time on this podcast, Ruthie, uh, let's start in Glasgow, where world (laughs) leaders, ministers and other concerned residents of this fragile planet are gathering to discuss how to undo centuries of eco-abuse. Joining them will be an Israeli delegation of more than 120 representatives from government ministries, academia, the business sector and local government. That's more people than Israel sent to the Olympic Games, Ruthie. (laughs) Well, arguably, this is a lot more important because uh, unless we rescue and rehabilitate the planet, uh, we won't have any more Olympic Games. Uh, This is is a good point. Uh, Many of those who are currently in Glasgow also attended a gathering at the president's residence in Jerusalem this week, uh, where Bougie Herzog promised them that after already establishing the Israeli Climate Forum to be headed by former Hadash MK Dov Hanin, by the way, he would also host a symposium on the crisis, emphasizing the connection of the fight against the climate crisis with the public business and commercial discourse in Israel. Ruthie, would it be fair to say that Israel takes its forums, symposia and conferences more seriously than it takes the climate itself? (laughs) I think that is uh, an extraordinarily accurate summation because uh, I do not think that Israel is uh, any exception to the rule that countries are beginning, governments and people are beginning to acknowledge the seriousness of the climate situation but uh, there's a lot more talk than action. Mm, and a lot more uh, lead headlines in, in newspapers. The lead story in Haaretz on Wednesday uh, was the 659-page state controller's report about Israel's climate change preparedness. Let, let's hope no one's printed out the whole report, right? Um, <laughs> and and that, well, that report found that successive governments' failure to prepare for the climate crisis endangers Israeli citizens, right? Well, actually, you could say that uh, the same is true of every government. There are two aspects here, okay? Let us differentiate between mitigation of climate change as it is unfolding and as will ensue, and then there's adaptation, which is Mm. a completely different thing. Now, mitigation means that we are trying, or we would aspire to try, we aspire to stop carbon emissions. I would say that by and large, uh, this is not happening. Carbon emissions have continued to increase. 
Uh, plus, we have now uh, increased uh, release of methane for melting permafrost and so on. So in other words, we have mitigation, which so far is a lot of lip service and uh, not enough action. Uh, planting trees is not going to do the trick. And uh, adaptation is another thing entirely. That's where you say to yourself, okay, no matter what we do at this point, there is going to be more temperature increase and there is going to be more sea level rise even from the present level of carbon dioxide, which as I said, is still increasing, okay? And so one thing that we have to do while taking steps to mitigate are steps to adapt. For mm. instance, uh, the Netherlands is a prime example of actually taking action there where they are moving towards adaptation by saying the sea levels will rise. How do we deal with this floating farms, Seawalls, you name it, seawalls. I don't, I'm not going to discuss now the inefficiency of seawalls, hmm. but that's adaptation. Now, in Israel right now, uh, we seem to be doing very, very little of any of this. So uh, when Prime Minister Naftali Bennett told ministers this week that Israel's climate targets weren't ambitious enough, and he called for a, a, a goal of net zero amp emissions by 2050, this is part of mitigation? Uh, yes, that would be part of mitigation. It's certainly not part of adaptation, but it's way too little, way too late. Mm. And, okay, and if, right if, now, if only he were in a position of power and could do something about it, right? And the current goal, <laughs> the current goal is at twenty-seven percent by twenty thirty, and eighty-five percent reduction by twenty fifty. Uh, are either of those goals realistic? Well, that very much depends on the sacrifices you're willing to make, and this is something that people are very reluctant to discuss, and certainly politicians in democratic societies don't want to go there, which is that society at large has to adjust its expectations and its consumption levels and its aspirations. In other words, living the good life is no longer compatible with living on our planet. We are massively over overusing our resources, okay? We are overdrawn on resources. Every year we become more overdrawn on resources and yet consumption is not being reined in. There was an example today that uh, absolutely stunned me when I saw just a little statistic mm. that China's chandelier exports hit a record high of 9.9 billion in the year 2020. Let me repeat that. Chinese chandelier exports hit a record high of almost $10 billion in 2020. This is a luxury item, to put it mildly. Who <laughs> needs a chandelier? You can't eat a chandelier. You can't feed it to your animals. You, you can't go to work on it. Uh, they're pretty. I will assume the Chinese chandeliers are as beautiful as any other chandeliers. And who are they exporting these things to? And note you that you have the energy cost of the manufacture of this frippery, and mm. then you have the transport costs and all the uh, storehouse and God knows what. Uh, their main customers in 2020 were the United States, Canada, and Germany. Huh. Okay. Now, this is the point about uh, mitigation, that it is high time for people to realize that the answers are not going to lie in government and not going to lie in big business, which has an inherent interest in increasing shareholder value. Mm. Okay. It is very hard for big business to say, okay, people, stop buying our stuff or they'll all shift to something uh, that's absolutely necessary. This has to come from the grassroots. This has to come from people saying, okay, we need to adjust our adaptations and stop catering to these businesses that create uh, things we don't really need and, and export blueberries all over the world by planes. I mean, you don't need that, okay? And that they have to come to terms with the fact that they themselves should adjust their vacation methodology. Mm. They should, and foremost, 
need to stop voting for politicians who make empty promises hmm. or distract them with different issues. Okay, racism is a classic. But uh, the distraction from the one thing that matters the most, which is that we are turning this planet into a place that will not be habitable, it, they, they would rather not go there because then they're not going to get voted back in. Let alone if they say, and by the way, while we're about it, when you go to the voting booth, walk and tighten your belt. I think that here is uh, the real problem. Hmm. And so what we have are politicians who continue to talk the talk and uh, and do very little because they're afraid for their for their seats. But 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 this is by the way the general case. Mm, but I'm it's not a, attacking one party here or there. Right, and it, it it seems that in Israel, not only are we not dealing with the mitigation, we're also not addressing the adaptation. And according to this mammoth state I, controllers report, it warned of, of food scarcity, electricity shortages, security threats, and the spread of diseases. He said that most government ministries don't have any kind of plan for dealing with the crisis. Uh, yes, that's absolutely a disgrace. And that's probably, I, I, I am not the state controller, I accept his word on that. And uh, But I believe it's true. I certainly have seen, uh, I have not observed serious signs of uh, acknowledgement of the true costs of climate change, let alone explanations of how we are going to live under these conditions. Now, I'll give you an example of something that you might think is adaptation, but it's quite the opposite, mm. where you have certain Gulf states that said, okay, it's too hot to play in the stadium. We will air condition the mall. We will air condition the streets. We, you can't do that. I mean, that's not a solution. Mm. Uh, cooling centers full of air conditioning is not a solution. When you're talking about the acknowledgement that you're going to have massive floods and planning what to do with that flood water, now you're talking adaptation, okay? Mm. And right now we don't have that. We do, in Israel, we can expect to have extremes of weather. By the way, the temperature here in Israel has already increased by more than the global mean. Okay, if the global mean temperature has so far risen by about 1.1 to 1.2, apparently in Israel, the global mean temperature has risen by 1.5 degrees Celsius. Mm, that that this okay, is uh, global mean uh, is one point two degrees Celsius. Israel is one point five degrees Celsius. Right, as our, our colleague Leah Ron reported, that um, the Israel Meteorological Service uh, reported that the the pace at which average temperatures are rising in Israel has tripled in, in recent decades. Yes, now that has to be seen in proportion. To phrase it otherwise, what we're seeing here is acceleration of the warming trend. Mm. Okay, and I have to point out that climate models as they are now don't have resolution fine enough to say what is likely to happen in a given city or a tiny little country like Israel in the space of five years or 10 years. But what we are definitely seeing is acceleration. I would also point to the anecdotal sense, which I myself have felt, that the nature of storms here, like in so many places around the world that we're seeing, has changed. Mm. I never saw sheets of water falling like I did last winter. Okay. Mm. And uh, I would also add and point out that the long-term forecast for Israel is intense desertification, which means it's going to become even more arid than it is today. And the occasional flood is not going to mitigate that and it's not going to help us adapt to that. It would help if we had an idea what to do with the floodwater, except for letting it uh, go into basements and drown people in elevators, as happened a few years ago in one tragic case. 
in mm. one extraordinary tragic case. But no, there is, I, I have not heard about preparations for much higher heat. I have not heard about serious preparations for the inevitable extreme storms that we're going to experience. Mm. And the, the watchdog said in his report that crisis preparedness is a key component of national strategy. There are oh, also yeah. there are also reports that Israel's preparing a, a national climate emergency declaration that would actually obligate all state bodies, including the defense establishment, to beef up their preparations uh, for the impact of climate change. A step in the right direction because everything has to start from acknowledgement and uh, once you have brought acknowledgement by government that this is indeed the case and once they start coming up with genuine solutions and working with genuine experts then uh then then we can talk about adaptation okay then we can have true adaptation which other uh, people need it definitely is a question of national security at some point mm. Whether you're talking about uh, depleting water supplies or whether you're talking about climate migrants from elsewhere uh, there's no question that uh, these become national security issues. Mm. And then, uh, and once the uh, the defense establishment is obligated, we all know how much weight that carries uh, <laughs> financially and uh, societally in, in Israel. Listen, so Bennett, he's been speaking all week about the climate, obviously, ahead of uh, COP26. And uh, as is his wont, he, he spoke about the crisis through the prism of uh, a high-tech entrepreneur. It's, it's in his DNA, I guess. Okay. There was a, a climate tech report published by the Israel Innovation Authority just recently in collaboration with the Plantech community, uh, which found that 9% of, of, of the high-tech companies established in Israel over the past year develop climate climate technologies. Now, experts tell me that that's pretty impressive. Uh, switching hats briefly, Ruti, uh, what exactly is climate tech in this context and, and how is Israel faring? Are, are we talking, I, you know, uh, locust snacks, that sort of thing? <laughs> locust, fried locusts, roast locusts, locust gummy bears, whatever they are. <laughs> uh, if you're eating them instead of protein, then uh, you are taking a step in the theoretical right direction because we are already clear that not only the cow, but the pig and the sheep, and in other words, farm animals are, and food production in general is creating an enormous amount of emissions. Mm. Okay. And so hats off to the locust people. Uh, yes, that's true. How much they can actually get people to eat this, I'm not sure yet. Apparently you have to get kids before they're three years old after which they develop a yuck factor and it becomes much more difficult. But uh, climate tech is, runs the full gamut from better ways to grow a lemon tree, ways to keep the water trapped around the roots, to new irrigation methods. If you want, you could call in a Tafim's drip irrigation technology, a precursor to mm. climate tech. And I'll give you another example. Let's say you have a water reservoir, okay? And it's evaporating. It's evaporating way too fast. It's not being replenished and it's evaporating way too fast. You can cover it. There are technologies where you can do that. A different aspect, I would call this more, I don't know if it falls between mitigation and adaptation or just coping. Uh, you have uh, an Israeli startup that discovered a way to overcome blue-green algae blooms, which are a huge and growing problem. They're proliferating worldwide. And by the way, algae bloom of local waterways, of freshwater, of seawater can be incredibly toxic. Hmm. This is not a casual problem. So there's an Israeli startup that uh, can actually make a difference at, uh, 
at a significant level, certainly at the local level. And then you've got solar technologies, which are starting to improve. You've got uh, battery technology and so on and so forth. But here I want to make an important caveat, if I may, Mm. that uh, I am as excited and hopeful as anybody at the Israeli focus of the Israeli startup focus on climate change. Uh, Israelis are famously innovative, and I think that there's truth in that. But mitigation and adaptation policies formulated today cannot just say, oh, yeah, we will reduce in 90% by 2049, thanks to new technologies that don't exist yet, which Australia, by the way, kind of just did. In other words, uh, belatedly, the Australian government has addressed the fact that it's one of the world's great polluters and has set new targets. But part of the new of the government's policy is based on future technology. And I think that's a mistake because we don't know what futures technology is going to be and how, how effective it's going to be. Sometimes you can have a need for a technology and somebody invents something and it just doesn't work well enough or it's too expensive. Mm. or its maintenance proves to be prohibitive, or it proves to have some kind of toxic effect on the environment that you didn't necessarily expect, or it proves to be unstable. In other words, the policies formulated today absolutely must be based on existing technologies. And if new things are added and they become affordable and they become scaled up, then that's great. Mm. Not not just wishful thinking. No, wishful thinking is not going to get us very far. And by the way, that's what uh, a lot of these policies have seemed to be about because a lot of uh, countries set themselves target in the last COP conference and they just didn't meet them. Mm. Okay, Ruthie, let's switch hats again and, and move on to the past. This sounds like the elevator pitch for a new Indiana Jones movie, but <laughs> I, I understand that archaeologists have found the lost Church of the Apostles. How exciting. Is the site cursed? Uh. Uh, well, it's certainly cursed by mosquitoes, I'll tell you that. <laughs> uh, now, now, by the way, I, just, I want to qualify this. Okay, mm. this is important. They did not state categorically that they found the Lost Church of the Apostles. What they state is that they may have, and what they found now in this summer excavation, incredibly exciting, was uh, very much what they had hoped to find, inscriptions. Mm. Okay, they had already in the last excavation season they had found the structure of a church where they believe it plausible to be the site of Bethsaida. Okay. They found that in the, in last year's excavation season. And last year they told us that they hoped to find inscriptions. Well, they found them. However, naturally the inscriptions don't say something helpful, like, Oh, a welcome to Bethsaida. <laughs> welcome to Bethsaida, the house of, it doesn't say that, but we have, Uh, a dedication to the church founder and an inscription about the bishop. Okay, which means that this was a very important church. It was also a very large one by Byzantine standards. Mm. It was nicely ornate, which is again appropriate. Everything about it screams Byzantine church from the late fifth to the early sixth century. That's when it was built. And uh, the postulation of the archeologists digging there, Stephen Notley and Moti Aviam, is that they have found the Church of the Apostles. This is the best candidate. Uh, you might call it the only candidate right now for the church. There's another site which competes for the title of Bethsaida. Anyway, everything is still open, but uh, they hope to find even more information in the following digs. Oh, it what, is, however, very exciting news. What, what, uh, what else will they be looking for there? 
Uh, well, first of all, they, they have to finish cleaning off the inscriptions. Maybe they'll find more. Mm. Maybe they will find uh, more evidence of relics. I mean, who knows? And another thing that's very important is that they have found the remains of a village from the appropriate time around the site of the church. In other words, this is postulated to be the Jewish fishing village of Bethsaida, which is mentioned in the Gospels, and it fits the description. Whereas the competing site for Bethsaida doesn't actually seem to have a Roman period, mm. structures from that time. And so they're building a case. Mm. Categorical? Nothing. Not yet. Right, not, not yet conclusive. Um, I, I understand there's more exciting news for fans of uh, early artifacts of Christendom, right? Uh, tell us about the thousand-year-old crusader sword that's been found off Israel's Mediterranean oh. coast. Okay, uh, that's another fun story because, again, let me qualify, what we have is a sword. And it's absolutely covered in shells. If you look at the pictures of it, it's very impressive. Mm. It's big. We're talking about a sword that was about a meter long. That was heavy. You had to be a hell of a warrior to wield that thing. Now, this is the rub, okay? It has not yet been cleaned off and properly categorized. So why do they think it was Crusader as opposed to maybe from the Islamic forces? The answer to that was a simple one, as, as given to me. It was found a couple of hundred meters offshore, and the Muslim forces did not come by sea. Huh. And so the postulation is that it was a crusader sword. Okay, it's not yet proven, but it's very roughly the right shape. It seems to be from the right time. And the crusaders were definitely seafaring. So that's why they think it was a crusader sword, and it is, uh, it's a very unusual find. It was uh, buried all these years, which is, by the way, how it survived. And they're, they're going to start cleaning it off and, and, and examining then we will it. And we'll know more. But by the way, apropos weird, weird crusader stuff, mm -hmm. excavating one of the great crusader castles in Israel, Al Suf, which is right by Tel Aviv. People don't know it, but there's this amazing crusader castle overlooking the sea, just north of Tel Aviv. The archaeologists found one of the ballista balls. Okay, that had been thrown by the Muslim forces against the crusaders inside the castle. And how do we know that it was one of the Muslims' balls as opposed to something that they were building up to throw at the other guys? Because it's somebody had scribbled something on it in Arabic. Huh. Now, what? it's a little too uh, faded to be able to tell exactly what it said, but the assumption is that this particular stone projectile was along the lines of writing, this is for you, Adolf, on your bombs in World War II, and so on. In other words, it's kind of boast or a morale booster among your own team. Yeah, we're going to lob this over and kill somebody. It's a charming little artifact. And by the way, completely unique. Nothing quite like this has been found before. So it was raining balls, and one of them had a nasty message on it. <laughs> Early trolling. Early trolling, absolutely. <laughs> oh, and, but, but if we're going to talk about Crusaders, the most exciting find of all mm. is for the first time, archaeologists identify a site that they believe was a Crusader encampment. This site was where the Crusader army hunkered down ahead of the war against the Sultan. And uh, how did they identify it, you will ask? How did they identify it? Horseshoe nails. No. <laughs> I'm, I'm deadly serious. <laughs> this is a landscape archaeology project uh, by Rafi Lewis and colleagues, where 
at this specific site where they had estimated they would find things, they found a lot of metal artifacts, which attested there was an army here, there were people here, but not not an encampment like the Romans. The Romans would build walls Mm. and they would hang there for 200 years. Okay. And by the way, right next door, we do have a Roman camp from, of course, uh, much earlier, which uh, they had been hanging out at for about 200 years. At the Crusader camp, however, what was the main artifact the archaeologists identified out of all these metal? What do you think they found? Daggers, sword shields? No, horseshoe nails. And this is why, because the Crusaders, when they would put the shoe on the horse, the metal shoe, would leave the nail slightly proud of the shoe so it would get a better grip. It was like cleats. The horses had nail cleats and they would break. So ahead of battle, number one thing, they may have had camp followers and other delights, but the first thing they would do is reshoe their horses. And so what we find are a ton of the nails and that is how they identified uh, the Crusader campsite. The nails are also Crusader type, not other type and uh, other points, but uh, that was an extraordinary uh, discovery. Mm. And it also tells us what the soldiers were doing while they were waiting for to fight with the enemy. Absolutely fascinating. And this this is an article that we published recently on the website. And our, our listeners can oh, go check that did. out. It is called No Crusader Army Camps Have Ever Been Found Until Now. We we will link to it in the uh, in the episode notes, Ruthie. Um, so listen, before we wrap things up, uh, what else is happening in the, the crazy eclectic world of a science archaeology editor? Uh, I, I saw that if we want to live longer, we should fast for most of the day every day. Okay. And, and, and I filed that under excellent advice I will willfully ignore. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I really have to stress here that that isn't an archaeology story. That's a science story. Uh, absolutely. Hey. The mice were still alive, not died 2,000 years ago. And this was a fascinating study. Now, note you, we're talking about mice. Okay, I want to be very clear that nobody is saying to mom, if you want to live longer, this is what you have to do. (laughs) Uh, No, we're talking about mice. However, there are grounds to believe that this is an interspecies talent, shall we call it. The thing is this, it had already been elucidated that a what's called calorie restriction, okay, which was ex- in experimental terms about 30% less nutrition than let's say uh, what they would normally feed their poor lab animals. Mm. Mice and rats and dogs, and I don't remember who else, uh, some of the primates, calorie restriction led to an increase in lifespan. In the case of the mice, and in the case of certain other animals, you can also check this by various metabolic data. In other words, you don't have to uh, half starve it and then sit and wait for it to die and say, oh, gee, how long did that take? You can yes. use metabolic proxies, okay, which show the state of its uh, glucose and the state of its uh, general well-being. Okay, now what happens here? The people suddenly, somebody said, wait a second, are the mice living longer because they are uh, being subjected to calorie restriction? Mm-hmm. Or are they living longer because they are fasting most of the day? They were only fed once, poor things. Okay. And they said, we better check this. That's an interesting thought that nobody had. And they checked it. And what they found was fascinating. They found that it wasn't the calorie restriction at all, it was the fasting. Now, elucidating what in earth that meant was that the mice would get fed once a day, they would nosh for about two hours, and then they would get nothing for 22 hours. And uh, it was the fast that mattered. So 
I asked if they were fed junk food, if the same would apply. Mm. And the answer was, we do not know. We did not feed them mouse candy. But uh, the assumption is that, no, if you're going to live on chips, uh, and you can fast for 22 hours a day, you're still not going to. All right. So one big, healthy, trick. one big healthy meal a day. One big healthy meal a day, and your mouse will probably live longer <laughs> and, and live better, too. Now, uh, if you care to volunteer for that experiment, I will connect you with the scientists. Uh, absol absolutely not. Ruthie, it's been fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. I, I look forward to chatting again soon. I look forward to it, too, Simon. Have a great week. Listener, that's all for this week. Don't forget to listen to Haaretz Weekly on Monday, and we'll be back next Friday with another episode of Haaretz Weekend. Until then, Shabbat Shalom from Tel Aviv. <laughs>